0: Right, so chapter 14, appropriating the meeting. Uh, we spent a couple weeks on chapter 13. Uh, we're in this stage of application, and so we're continuing to think about application. And as we've talked about application uh, the last couple weeks, we talked about determining relevant applications uh, of the text, so we're not misapplying the text of Scripture. Um, however, up to this point in our study, even as we went through the observation and interpret, interpretation stage, we've been very much focused on kind of methodically going about a process to observe, interpret, and determine um, how to properly apply the text, how to draw applications from the text. And so even our study the last couple weeks in application, we talked about um, some specific kind of methodical ways to make sure we're applying it and not misapplying it. But we have to be careful because when it comes to applying Scripture, Um, We can't just rely upon a process or a method, right? There are good methods or good strategies to use. But as we're going to talk about today, we've got to really depend upon God's Spirit to stir our hearts and to transform us. Uh, The book says, In an age where information is plentiful, we're reminded that God's desire is not that His people simply know the truth, but that the truth of His Word transforms His people. Okay? So we can know... We could work through all the methods that we've worked through even with application and we could know this is how to apply this text and this is how to misapply this text and we could still miss the point, we still not apply it to our lives properly. And the book goes on, let's not be deceived into thinking that the journey ends with an understanding of what the word meant to the original readers or even what it means to us today. Spiritual transformation is ultimately personal transformation an active knowledge of what the text means for me today. So we can know how to apply it in a broad sense, in a general sense, how that text applies to us. I love the way we got to know what it means to me and apply it to us and allow the word to transform us. So there are some steps to think through as we seek to go about this, but we've got to uh, not rely upon those things. We need to rely upon uh, the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about I mentioned that quote in the introduction there, but let's talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. We cannot overlook the necessity of the Holy Spirit's work in appropriating the truth to believers, okay? We should expect that in order to fully understand and apply a divinely inspired text, we need to be divinely illuminated to do so, okay? That word may be not super familiar, but what do you think the word what do you think of when you think of the word illuminate? You think of lights and being uh, light coming. Uh, you know, we talk about lights illuminating a house or a room, whatever it may be. So the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, shines light into his word. Okay? The book says uh, this. Many assume that illumination is God's provision of supernatural interpretive insight, the occasional aha moment where the baffled reader finally understands what the text is saying. Others might view illumination as the Spirit's enablement to perceive facts and judge the plausibility of arguments with greater clarity. Still others see illumination as an exegetical safeguard, God's means of rectifying the distortion of truth. Some even suggest that the Spirit's role in interpretation, is so absolute that the Spirit-filled believer needs no other tool but illumination in Bible study. Although these approaches reflect different degrees and emphases on in the work of the Spirit, they have one thing in common, a primary focus on divine enablement to, to accurately interpret the Bible. While the Holy Spirit is certainly capable of providing interpretive insight, we'd suggest that illumination has more to do with appropriation than interpretation. Okay, so the key is, of course, we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit throughout the process of inductive Bible study. When it comes to observation, when it comes to interpretation, but especially in the application stage, we need the Holy Spirit. And so, um, I like how they point out. You know, we we do need to practice uh, some of these principles that we've talked about with interpretation. Um, is it sufficient to rely upon the Holy Spirit? There's, I think there's probably a yes and no answer to that. We definitely need the Holy Spirit. And I think if we were left to ourselves on an island, could God give us wisdom and insight to His Word? Absolutely. But to neglect uh, tools that are out there to neglect deeper study, I think, leaves us falling short of how God would desire us to study His Word. Okay, So we're doing that even with dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So, Uh, We're going to look at a few passages uh, that talk about, and you can see them on the screen or in your notes. So I'm going to have a few of you turn here. We'll read a few of these passages that um, we know that as we study scripture, the word illumination is actually nowhere found in scripture. Okay. Uh, But just like a lot of things, a lot of concepts, you know, the word Trinity is not found in scripture, but we see the idea there. We see the concept. So we're going to look at a few passages that speak to this idea of illumination. So who would look up 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 for us this morning, that first one, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16? Okay, Debbie? 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Who would look that up? 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Okay, Marty? Yes. And then Matthew 13, 10 through 16. Somebody look that up for us, Courtney. And then Luke 24, 44 to 45. All right, Paul. All right, so these speak about just illumination depending upon the Spirit. And so we're going to think about, uh, so as as we read these verses, think about what it's speaking to about illumination, the Holy Spirit. Why we can't understand God's word apart from his spirit. Okay? So first Corinthians two, six through sixteen. Okay, so a lengthy passage, but we see this wisdom that only comes from the Spirit. Okay, so think about that as we continue to read these verses, and then we'll ask a few questions based on these passages. The next one 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. So that was 1 Corinthians, right? <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll read us. Uh, it was 2 Corinthians three, twelve through 18. No problem. Let me read it because I got it right here. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being uh, brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that 1 Corinthians talked about wisdom as well. Um, but here we see that idea of Moses uh, veiling his face, that Old Testament picture when he saw God's glory. He put that veil on and it's a way of illustrating this veil that uh, keeps those who haven't come to Christ from seeing the truth. Okay? Uh, the next one, Matthew thirteen ten through 16. Okay, very good. And the last one, Luke twenty four forty four to forty five. Okay, so the context there is the ro- uh, walk to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, and he's explaining to these two disciples everything about the Messiah and the Old Testament, and then their eyes are open to the truth. He uh, divinely opens their minds, as it says there, to understand the Scripture. So based on these passages, why is it impossible for an unbeliever to properly understand and apply God's Word? Based on these verses, why is it impossible for an unbeliever to properly understand and apply God's Word? They don't have a spirit. And we saw in that 1 Corinthians passage, we can't understand God's word apart from his spirit. Um, And so they're blinded to the truth without that spirit. Other thoughts? Why is it impossible for an unbeliever to properly understand and apply God's word? talked about that element of that veil second corinthians that three second corinthians 3 12 through 18 there's a veil there's a picture of being dark and being blinded to the truth uh, in matthew 13 i think courtney referenced that they they haven't opened their eyes their eyes are closed so there's an element of you, know, you think about even with uh pharaoh how he hardened his heart but god hardened his heart at the same time there's this almost tension between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. And so I think there's that tension we feel here, that unbelievers are willingly not open, not receptive to God's Word. And apart from supernatural drawing them to faith in Christ, humbling them to the point of realizing their need and coming by faith, their eyes will remain darkened. It talked about that in that Second Corinthians passage, that even as they read the Law of Moses... They may understand it, they may have it memorized, but there's a veil over their eyes until they would come to, to faith in Christ, right? What, what is it that darkens or that, that causes people not to come to the truth? Think about John 1, maybe that'll give you a hint. What, what keeps people from coming to the truth, coming to the light? Turn to John 1. That just came to my mind. But. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay? And I think of 1 John chapter 1 as well. Um, and I'll just reference it, but here we see this picture of light coming to understanding and a picture of darkness. And why does, I think it's in 1 John, why do men not come to the light? Why do they stay in the darkness? Okay. Yeah, they love the darkness. They love their sin, right? Um they, they they wouldn't cut they um I think it was in I can't remember if it was in Matthew thirteen where you're talking about, but yeah, they love their sin, so instead of coming and, and experiencing healing, experiencing um revelation from God, they remain in their sin, remain in darkness, right? So they don't have the spirit of God, their eyes are darkened to the truth. So I like this quote from the book A Scholar in Ancient Near Eastern Literature. May understand all there is to know about Old Testament historical background, yet have a mind that is darkened to the spiritual truth revealed in the text. A linguist may understand the grammar and syntax of the original languages, yet without the divine spark of illumination bypass the truth even as she parses Greek or Hebrew grammar. Illumination is not divine enlightenment as to the exegetical meaning of the text, but rather a matter of divine enablement to find something truly meaningful in the text and appropriating to one's life. So you could have scholars who know all kinds of things beyond what we know as far as the languages or the historical context, whatever it may be, and yet apart from the Holy Spirit, they are not. They can't understand the truth, right? So as believers, we have the Spirit if we put our faith in Christ, Um, that gives us the ability to understand God's Word and to properly apply it to our hearts and lives, be transformed by it, what opposition as believers do we face against allowing the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to God's Word? What opposition do we face as believers to allowing the Holy Spirit to illumine, illumine God's Word? Our own nature, our flesh, we're still wrestling with our own flesh? Absolutely. What else? The world, absolutely, the world around us would throw out priorities, different things that would sidetrack us and not make God's word a priority. We would neglect his word. What else? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Satan, there's satanic opposition uh, to allowing God's spirit to illuminate uh, his word to us. So how can we overcome this opposition? Prayer, absolutely, is prayer. prayerful dependence, um, confessing our sin before him, seeking cleansing when we've relied upon our flesh. Um, absolutely. What else? How can we overcome this opposition? Yeah, absolutely. Accountability with others. Absolutely. What else? The whole armor, absolutely. That's That's where I was trying to get us to. All those are great answers, and prayer is really right in that context of Ephesians 6, but yeah, putting on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, you know, those different aspects of uh, the armor we have to fight the spiritual battle, to fight against the world and against our flesh. So let's talk about appropriating the truth, okay? So we can't go about a proper application in a very rigid, methodical way, okay? But there are some practical aspects and steps that we can take to aid us in applying God's word, okay? Um, one very simple technique you see there is we talked about last week developing teaching points. As we're studying a text, we're trying to find that underlying principle and then put specific teaching points in certain contexts. And typically we do this by, you know, as we study a passage, we would then say we should do this or that as the teaching point application. Well, a very uh, practical way is just to simply shift the pronouns, So instead of saying we should do this or that based on this passage, I should do this, right? So we're making it more personal. Um, It kind of hits us in the face a little more than just a broad uh, generalization of it, okay? So it brings the application home. But there's also some practical points we're going to talk about um, that we can seek to do. Again, not in a rigid manner, but as we're depending upon the Spirit to enlighten us, to illuminate the Word. The first one is personal assessment. Okay? The Bible speaks to me personally. In order to appropriate the Word of God, I must understand myself having come face-to-face with the Word of God. So personal application requires knowledge of Scripture and knowledge of self. First John, or sorry, James 1, 22-25, very familiar passage. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer... He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in what way, we see this James really used God's word in illustration of a, a, as a mirror. In what way is God's word like a mirror? What way is God's Word like a mirror? How many of you looked in the mirror this morning? Hopefully, just about all of us, right? How is God's Word like a mirror? Yes. Right. Yeah, if we're not looking, you know, if if we all left our house today without looking in the mirror. And if we did that over a long period of time, what would happen? We'd probably have zits or our hair would be out of place if you have hair. Uh, just different things that we, we wouldn't notice, right? And so when we neglect God's word, we fail to see ourselves as God sees us and see ourselves, as you said, compared to who Christ is, the perfect standard. Um, or, as James talks about, even if we come to the mirror and we see who we are, but we leave and forget what we were like, even looking in the mirror is not sufficient if we don't take care of the defects we see there. We've got to look into the mirror of God's Word and allow Him to transform us, Him to show us um, who we are in comparison to what He desires us to be and then to allow Him to transform us and make us more like Christ, okay? So God's Word shows us a perfect, holy God and in contrast how sinful we are, okay? Okay? What characteristics must we have in order to allow God's Word to show us who we are? What are some characteristics we need to have? There's at least two I can think of as we come to God's Word to allow it to change us. What are a couple uh, attributes, I guess we could say, or qualities that we need to have to allow God's Word to change us and to show us who we are? Humility is the first one I thought about, right? We've got to come humbly. If we come with pride, what are we going to do? We're going to say, well, that's not really who I am, or we'll make excuses for anything we see, so humility is absolutely key. What else? Can you think of another one? The other one I thought of starts with an H as well and ends with a Y. It's honesty, right? So we have to be honest and and allow ourselves to examine and allow God to examine our, our hearts honestly, right? We can't put up a facade Um, or make excuses in that way. So honesty and humility are key to allowing God's Word to to challenge us, to show us who we are, okay? So the book suggests doing, at this point, a personal inventory assessment. So that's the idea here, the personal assessment. So as you study various passages and matching the text with your own corresponding life situation, you'll develop these uh, personal assessments, okay? It's good to think through this, but also to actually write it down. Just like with the teaching points, it's key to write these personal assessments down uh, specifically. The book says, Much searching goes into inductive Bible study, but too often students of Scripture fail to search themselves to know where they stand before the Word of God. It goes without saying that even a little time spent doing personal inventory pays rich spiritual dividends, especially when joined, with the hard work of observation and interpretation. Effectual life change doesn't occur in the knowing of facts, but in the spirit-charged conviction that brings those facts to bear on myself. So as we're looking to the mirror of God's Word, we're writing down a personal assessment of, boy, God's Word has shown me that I struggle with anger, or I struggle in this area. Writing those things down, putting them at the forefront so that we're not looking, oh yeah, I struggle with anger, okay? And then we're going our own way and forgetting about it and getting angry still because we haven't uh, allowed God to, to challenge us. So writing these down can be a great way of keeping them at the forefront as we reflect on it and allow God hopefully to change us. The second step would be reflective meditation, okay? The book says, in personal assessment, the emphasis is on an honest and humble search of your own heart. In reflective meditation, we're primarily concerned with the content of Scripture rather than personal inventory. So the first step of personal inventory is we're allowing God's Word to look at us and examine who we are and lay it on the table. Here's here's the areas I struggle with. Now, reflective meditation is reflecting on what God's Word says about that, right? So if it's anger, we're thinking of James where it says, you know, uh, be slow to uh, speak, slow to wrath, right? Right? Um, we're reflecting on what God's Word teaches about that maybe personal struggle. So as we think about that idea of reflecting and meditating on God's Word, are there any passages that come to mind? Hint, there's one on the notes and on the screen, but can you think of any other passages that come to mind? The one I put on the screen was Psalm 139, 23 through 24, where I believe David writes that psalm. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Any other passages come to mind about reflecting upon God's word? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the other example they give in the book as well is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is full of reflecting upon the joy of God's word. And I love what they say. I put this quote on the screen, I think, in your notes. If there's any biblical treaty on the merits and value of Scripture, it's Psalm 119. In all the wonder of this wisdom psalm, there is no instruction on how to study the Bible. There's no inductive plan, no exegetical arrangement. No analysis of context and content. There is, however, an emphasis on meditation, the permeating presence of Scripture in the mind of the psalmist. And so they gave several examples. We could go through Psalm 119 and look at example after example of meditating upon God's Word, seeing the the beauty of God's Word challenging us. The goal of meditation is not accuracy in interpretation or legitimacy in application. Rather, the goal of meditation is Is to hear what God is saying through the text on a personal, spiritual level. Okay, so this doesn't negate seeking to properly interpret Scripture. Doesn't say just throw all that out. You know, Psalm one nineteen doesn't talk about how to interpret Scripture, so we don't really need to care about that. We just need to all uh, meditate upon what God's Word means to us. That's not to throw any of that out, because truthfully, proper interpretation fuels proper application. God uses that proper understanding of His Word to deepen that application of it. And I love the quote they have, and I think I might have put this on the notes. In a wondrous display of grace, God often speaks through His Word even when interpretive precision is lacking. If the Word has power to speak in spite of sloppy interpretation, how much more will it speak with power through a fully discovered, accurately interpreted text? So, You guys can probably speak to this if you've studied the Bible before, but the joy of going through God's Word, and even as we're in those stages of observation and interpretation, we talked about how, truthfully, it's hard to just say, this is observation stage, this is interpretation, this is application. A lot of them are are kind of working in tandem together. And so even as you're going through the interpretation stage, and you're diving into... A deeper understanding of God's Word, what happens is God's Spirit stirs up that proper, you know, that, that application and that uh, not just understanding, but the joys of applying it to your life and living it out. So truly, that idea of interpretation helps us to better apply God's Word. Okay, the third one is this individual appropriation. Individual appropriation is the transformative stage in application, a matter of becoming doers of the word and not hearers only. However, appropriation isn't simply a matter of us doing what the text says. It also involves what the text is doing to us. That is, the text is performing the work of spiritual transformation in the heart and mind of the reader. So personal assessment. Who am I in light of God's word? Again, just that example of anger. Man, I'm reading God's Word and I'm challenged that I have an anger issue. Reflective meditation. Well, God's Word teaches that all these things about anger, right? Now, individual appropriation. Allowing God to challenge us to turn away from anger. To, you know, experience the fruit of the Spirit, which would be uh, counterintuitive to anger, right? That would be more the works of the flesh, that idea of wrath. And so... Individual appropriation is allowing God's Word to then transform us in that area uh, through prayer, through uh, meditating upon His Word continuously, okay? So it's not just a matter, and I like how they point this out. All right, God's Word says don't be angry, okay? I'm not going to be angry, and that's all we do. in our own strength, we try to not be angry. Is that going to be successful? Probably not. Maybe... In our own strength, we can make a little bit of progress, but we're truly not going to be transformed. We need supernatural. We can't produce the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength and our own flesh, right? And so the idea is that it's not just, okay, be doers of the Word, now go out and do it. It's relying upon the Spirit to empower us. It's surrendering to Him to give us the strength to do it, okay? And think about this as many of you are parents, Think about it with your kids. We, of course, want our kids to obey. We want them to do what's right and what's, and not what's wrong. But if all we focus on is behavior modification and external obedience, have we really done a good job as a parent? No, we've fallen short. They might obey because of the consequences in the house, and but if we don't ever get to their heart and allow, truthfully, God to get to their heart, what's going to happen when they grow up and they're they're no longer in the house. They're probably going to, if their heart's still rebellious, they're going to rebel, right? And so we need transformation, okay? Not just an external behavior modification. We need internal transformation that only comes from the Holy Spirit working in our lives, okay? Romans 7, uh, I just want to reference this real quickly. Romans 7 speaks to this. And we can all relate to this. Where we know what's right, we know it's wrong, we try to do what's right, but we end up doing what's wrong. The Apostle Paul had the same struggle, Romans seven fifteen to 25. The Apostle Paul says, "'For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh.' For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he concludes this. Wretched man that I am, right? I want to do what's right. I can't do it. I always do what I hate. And what's wrong? I've got this war within my soul because I know what's right to do. And, of course, he has the Holy Spirit that's convicting him. And he just concludes this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So God gives us the power to overcome this war of our flesh. I've heard the illustration, and I think it was a Native American proverb where they talked about, it's like there's two wolves within your soul fighting, you know, the good wolf and the bad wolf. And someone said, well, which wolf wins? You know the answer? The one you feed the most, right? Right. If you're constantly feeding your flesh and giving into sin, then that wolf in your in, in this illustration is stronger. But if you feed the Spirit through studying God's word, meditating upon it, being honest, being humble, then God can begin and continue to transform your life. Okay? All right, so real quickly, we talked last week about teaching points, developing these teaching points. So as you're going through the word. You're writing down, okay, here's a good, almost as though you were teaching someone else. Based on this passage, we should do this. This is what what we as a church should do, or this is what we as believers should do, okay? Devotional is going to bring it a little more to a personal level, okay? So let's give a quick illustration of this. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. This is railings. So when you build a new house, make some railings for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So real quickly, um, we know there's a cultural, we go back to the interpretation stage, we know there's a cultural divide there. Not a lot of people are building. In this day and age, there was a lot of activity on the roof, and so they would build railings. But what is the underlying principle to this passage in Deuteronomy 22, 8? What's the underlying principle that goes beyond cultural application? building railings around your roof. What would be an underlying principle we could pull from that? Okay. Yeah. There's various applications where you make the underlying principle is seek to do things. Don't be reckless. Put things in place that are going to provide safety for other people. Don't be negligent, right, would be the underlying principle. We could make a lot of then parallel applications to today like, uh, well, it should be you should try to have railings around your porch or fences around your pool or a cover over your pool or maybe put your dog on a leash, uh, car seats for children, seat belts, life jackets. We go on and on about how to apply this underlying principle. Okay, So we could make general statements in a teaching point form like this. So this would be the teaching point. Those who, and this is a specific example, a specific application. Those who own cars and transport children in cars ought to put them in age-appropriate car seats, right? That would be a good teaching point. Anybody that owns a car, has children, use appropriate equipment for that child, appropriate, age-appropriate car seat, okay? But for us to make this a devotional point and bring this application from general to personal, we would. those of us who have children would put it this way. I will put my child in a car seat in order to take responsibility for their welfare and safety knowing that neglecting such safety measures would make me guilty of negligence if an accident were to occur. So you see the difference between developing a teaching point that's very general and then bringing it home. Uh, This is what I am going to do by God's grace through his spirit, right? So this is a very practical uh, picture of this, a very practical teaching point. And many times God's word is just that way. It's very practical, okay? We don't want to spiritualize an application like, You can see people that don't have a proper understanding of how to apply God's word saying, well, that verse, Deuteronomy 22, put up these railings around your house. You know, we need to put railings around our heart and guard ourselves from sin. Well, that's an overly spiritual application to something that's meant to be very practical, right? So we want to be careful not to allegorize and misapply, just generalize uh, those things, okay? So, conclusion here as we wrap up. Throughout our study, we've sought to break down the stages of observation, interpretation, and application. But as I mentioned, truthfully, these overlap so much. As you're going through this process, as you're observing, you're naturally bringing in some interpretation. As you're interpreting Scripture, naturally, God's Spirit hopefully is stirring you to think about the application of that. So it's hard to just segment those stages. There's a lot of overlap. And so I conclude with this quote, and I think I've got part of it there on the screen and in your notes. They say, we realize that in practice we can't help but personalize the text as soon as we read it. To do so is only natural. Understanding Scripture generates an almost instantaneous response in the heart and mind of the Spirit-filled believer. An honest approach to application will therefore recognize that interpretation and application often overlap. Daniel Dorini describes this as the permeable barrier between meaning and application. Although application cannot occur without interpretation... And although interpretation logically precedes application, the two are often integrated without boundary in theory and in practice. To overemphasize the distinction between them may in fact be detrimental to the health of the church. Should we think that God wants a hard and fast line to be drawn between interpretation and application? We don't think so. Scripture itself testifies to know God is to obey Him and to know Scripture is to do what it says. So even as we're going through those stages, we should be allowing God to stir our hearts with application and depending upon His Spirit to apply His Word to us. Okay? Any questions or thoughts as we wrap up? Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and God's Spirit is never going to apply the text in a way that was not intended, right, by the original author and for the church. So that's why all these stages are important. Um, and we can't, we can't go about a very rigid process with observation and interpretation only. We need the Holy Spirit throughout the process, right? Um, but we can't also just say, ah, well, I don't need to study any of those historical aspects or the grammar. I don't need to know any of that. I'll just let the Holy Spirit lead me. No, God would desire you to do both, right? It's not an either or. We want to study, we want to dive in and as we get into the depths of understanding, maybe the cultural background, the historical context, the Greek and Hebrew, whatever it may be, God's word is is brought to life. God's spirit uses that. So, absolutely. We don't want to just what does this word mean to you? Well, I think I need to put up railings in my heart. Well, <laughs> That's not what was intended with Deuteronomy 22.8, okay? Very good observation. Well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed.